We have heard extracts from the accounts of several persons who attended the meeting on August the 16th, including Samuel Bamford and John Benjamin Smith. The full versions of their accounts follow. We conclude with Mrs. Isabella Banks's fictionalised account of the events of the day from her novel The Manchester Man. First, Samuel Bamford. In about half an hour after our arrival, the sounds of music and reiterated shouts proclaimed the near approach of Mr. Hunt and his party, and in a minute or two they were seen coming from Deansgate, preceded by a band of music and several flags. On the driving seat of a barouche sat a neatly dressed female, supporting a small flag on which were some emblematical drawings and an inscription. Within the carriage were Mr. Hunt, who stood up, Mr. Johnson of Smedley Cottage, Mr. Morehouse of Stockport, Mr. Carlyle of London, Mr. John Knight of Manchester, and Mr. Saxton, a sub-editor of the Manchester Observer. Their approach was hailed by one universal shout from probably 80,000 persons. They threaded their way slowly past us and through the crowd, which Hunt eyed, I thought, with almost as much of astonishment as satisfaction. This spectacle could not be otherwise, in his view, than solemnly impressive. Such a mass of human beings he had not beheld till then. His responsibility must weigh on his mind. Their power for good or evil was irresistible, and who should direct that power? Himself alone who had called it forth. The task was great and not without its peril. The meeting was indeed a tremendous one, he mounted the hustings. The music ceased. Mr. Johnson proposed that Mr. Hunt should take the chair. It was seconded and carried by acclamation, and Mr. Hunt, stepping towards the front of the stage, took off his white hat and addressed the people. Whilst he was doing so, I proposed to an acquaintance that, as the speeches and resolutions were not likely to contain anything new to us, and as we could see them in the papers, we should retire a while and get some refreshment, of which I stood much in need, being not in very robust health. He assented, and we had got to nearly the outside of the crowd, when a noise and strange murmur arose towards the church. Some person said it was the Blackburn people coming, and I stood on tiptoe, and looked in the direction whence the noise proceeded, and saw a party of cavalry in blue and white uniform come trotting, sword in hand, round the corner of a garden wall, and to the front of a row of new houses, where they reined up in a line. The soldiers are here, I said. We must go back and see what this means. Oh, someone made reply, they only come to be ready if there should be any disturbance in the meeting. Well, let us go back, I said, and we forced our way towards the colours. On the cavalry drawing up, they were received with a shout of goodwill, as I understood it. They shouted again, waving their sabres over their heads, and then, slackening rein and striking spur into their steeds, they dashed forward and began cutting the people. Stand fast, I said, they are riding upon us, stand fast, and there was a general cry in our quarter of stand fast. The cavalry were in confusion, they evidently could not, with all the weight of man and horse, penetrate that compact mass of human beings and their sabres were plied to hew away through naked, held-up hands and defenceless heads, and then chopped limbs and wound-gaping skulls were seen, 
and groans and cries were mingled with the din of that horrid confusion. Ah, ah, for shame, for shame, was shouted. Then, break, break, they are killing them in front and they cannot get away. And there was a general cry of, break, break. For a moment the crowd held back as in a pause. Then there was a rush, heavy and resistless as a headlong sea, and a sound like low thunder, with screams, prayers and imprecations from the crowd-moiled and sabre-doomed who could not escape. By this time Hunt and his companions had disappeared from the hustings, and some of the yeomanry, perhaps less sanguinarily disposed than others, were busied in cutting down the flagstaves and demolishing the flags at the hustings. On the breaking of the crowd, the yeomanry wheeled, and, dashing whenever there was an opening, they followed, pressing and wounding. Many females appeared as the crowd opened, and striplings or mere youths also were found. Their cries were piteous and heart-rending, and would, one might have supposed, have disarmed any human resentment. But here their appeals were in vain. Women, white-vested maids and tender youths, were indiscriminately sabred or trampled, and we have reason for believing that few were the instances in which that forbearance was vouchsafed which they so earnestly implored. In ten minutes from the commencement of the havoc, the field was an open and almost deserted space. The sun looked down through a sultry and motionless air. Curtains and blinds of the windows within view were all closed. A gentleman or two might occasionally be seen looking out from one of the new houses before mentioned, near the door of which a group of persons, special constables, were collected, and apparently in conversation. Others were assisting the wounded or carrying off the dead. The hustings remained, with a few broken and hewed flagstaves erect, and a torn and gashed banner or two drooping, whilst over the whole field were strewed caps, bonnets, hats, shawls and shoes, and other parts of male and female dress, trampled, torn and bloody. The yeomanry had dismounted, some were easing their horses' girths, others adjusting their accoutrements, and some were wiping their sabres. Several mounds of human beings still remained where they had fallen, crushed down and smothered. Some of these still groaning, others with staring eyes were gasping for breath, and others would never breathe more. All was silent save those low sounds, and the occasional snorting and pawing of steeds. Persons might sometimes be noticed peeping from attics and over the tall ridgings of houses, but they quickly withdrew, as if fearful of being observed, or unable to sustain the full gaze of a scene so hideous and abhorrent. Besides the Manchester Yeomanry, who, as I have already shown, did the duty of the day, there came upon the ground soon after the attack the 15th Hussars and the Cheshire Yeomanry, and the latter, as if emulous of the Manchester Corps, intercepted the flying masses, and inflicted some severe sabre wounds. The hussars, we have reason for supposing, gave but few wounds, and I am not aware that it has been shown that one of those brave soldiers dishonoured his sword by using the edge of it. In addition to the cavalry, a strong body of the 88th foot was stationed at the lower corner of Dickinson Street, with their bayonets at the charge, they wounded several persons, and greatly impeded the escape of the fugitives by that outlet. Almost simultaneously with the hussars, four pieces of horse artillery appeared from Deansgate 
and about two hundred special constables were also in attendance, so that force for a thorough massacre was ready, had it been wanted. On the first rush of the crowd, I called to our men to break their flagstaves and secure their banners, but probably I was not heard or understood, all being then in inextricable confusion. He with the blue banner saved it, the cap of liberty was dropped and left behind. Indeed, woe to him who stopped, he would never have risen again, and Thomas Redford, who carried the green banner, held it aloft until the staff was cut in his hand, and his shoulder was divided by the sabre of one of the Manchester yeomanry. A number of our people were driven to some timber which lay at the foot of the wall of the Quaker's meeting-house. Being pressed by the yeomanry, a number sprung over the balks and defended themselves with stones which they found there. It was not without difficulty, and after several were wounded, that they were driven out. A heroine, a young married woman of our party, with her face all bloody, her hair streaming about her, her bonnet hanging by the string, and her apron weighed with stones, kept her assailant at bay until she fell backwards and was near being taken, but she got away covered with severe bruises. It was near this place, and about this time, that one of the yeomanry was dangerously wounded and unhorsed by a blow from a fragment of a brick, and it was supposed to have been flung by this woman. On the first advance of the yeomanry, one of the horses plunging at the crowd sent its forefeet into the head of our big drum, which was left near the hustings, and was irrecoverable. Thus booted on both legs at once, the horse rolled over, and the drum was kicked to pieces in the melee. For my own part, I had the good fortune to escape without injury, though it was more than I expected. I was carried, I may say almost literally, to the lower end of the Quaker's meeting-house, the further wall of which screened us from observation and pursuit, and afforded access to some open streets. In my retreat from the field, a well-dressed woman dropped on her knees a little on my left. I put out my hand to pluck her up, but she missed it, and I left her. I could not stop, and God knows what became of her. Two of the yeomanry were next in our way, and I expected a broken head, having laurel in my hat, but one was striking on one side and the other on the other, and at that moment I stepped betwixt them and escaped. After quitting the field, I first found myself in King Street, and passing into Market Street and High Street, I more leisurely pursued my way, taking care, lest some official should notice me, to remove the laurel from the outside to the inside of my hat. I was now unhappy on account of my wife, and I blamed myself greatly for consenting to her coming at all. I learned, however, when in St. George's Road, that she was well, and was on the way towards home, and that satisfied me for the time. Having met with an old neighbour, we agreed to go round past Smedley Cottage to learn what intelligence had arrived there. We descended the hill at Collyhurst, and on arriving at the bottom we espied a party of cavalry, whom, from their dress, I took to be of the Manchester Yeomanry, riding along the road we had quitted towards Harper Hay. One of them wore a broad green band or sash across his shoulder and breast. I thought from its appearance it was a fragment of our green banner, and I was not mistaken. They were traversing the suburbs to reconnoitre, and to pick up any person they could identify. Myself, for instance, had I then been in their way, and the inglorious exhibition of the torn banner was permitted for the gratification of the vanity of the captor. 
This party rode forward a short distance, and then returned, without making any prisoners from our party. At Smedley Cottage we found Mrs. Johnson, her two children, I think two, her maid-servant, and Mr. Hunt's groom, who had just come from the town, and had brought the information that Mr. Hunt, Mr. Johnson, Knight, Morehouse, and several others were prisoners in the New Bailey. I was touched by the lady's situation, though she bore the trial better than I could have expected. We gave her some particulars of the meeting, to which she listened with a manner mournfully thoughtful, occasionally shedding tears, and her features pale and calm as marble. She spoke not much, she was evidently too full to hold discourse, and so, with good wishes and consoling hopes, we took our departure. We now called at Harperhay, and found, at the public house, and in the road there, a great number of the Middleton and Rochdale people, who had come from the meeting. My first inquiry was for my wife, on whose account I now began to be downright miserable. I asked many about her, but could not hear any tidings, and I turned back toward Manchester with a resolution to have vengeance if any harm had befallen her. But I had not gone far, ere I espied her at a distance, hastening towards me. We met, and our first emotions were those of thankfulness to God for our preservation. She had been in greater peril and distress of mind, if possible, than myself. The former she escaped in a remarkable manner, and through the intervention of special constables to whom let us award their due. She afterwards heard first that I was killed, next that I was wounded, and in the infirmary, then that I was a prisoner, and lastly that she would find me on the road home. Her anxiety now being removed by the assurance of my safety, she hastened forward to console our child. I rejoined my comrades, and forming about a thousand of them into file, we set off to the sound of fife and drum, with our only banner waving, and in that form we re-entered the town of Middleton. The banner was exhibited from a window of the Suffield Arms public house. The cap of liberty was restored to us by a young man from Chadderton, who had picked it up on the outskirts of the field. And now we spent the evening in recapitulating the events of the day, and in brooding over a spirit of vengeance towards the authors of our humiliation and our wrong. Bamford, it must be said, may not be the most reliable witness of the events on St. Peter's Field. His account was no doubt coloured by his defence at the subsequent trial of the meeting's organisers. It also seems unlikely that he could have witnessed first-hand, from his position within the crowd, everything that he describes. John Benjamin Smith was a witness, not a participant, but his sympathies lay squarely with the reformers. Smith was a young businessman who was invited to observe the meeting by his mother. They watched from the house of his aunt, a Mrs. Orton, which faced St. Peter's Field. Smith's unpublished narrative first appeared in Bruton's Three Accounts of Peterloo. I had no intention of going to this meeting, but my aunt called at the counting-house and asked me to accompany her to Mrs. Orton's, Mount Street, St. Peter's Field, to see the great meeting, a house overlooking the whole space, and next but one to where the magistrates were assembled. We reached there at about half-past eleven o'clock, and on our way saw large bodies of men and women, with bands playing and flags and banners bearing devices, no corn laws, reform, etc. There were crowds of people in all directions, full of good humour, laughing and shouting and making fun. 
I always wore a white hat in summer, and I found that Mr. Hunt also wore a white hat, and it became the symbol of radicalism, and may have been the cause of the politeness shown to us by the crowd. It seemed to be a gala day with the country people, who were mostly dressed in their best, and brought with them their wives, and when I saw boys and girls taking their father's hand in the procession, I observed to my aunt, These are the guarantees of their peaceable intentions. We need have no fears. And so we passed on to Mrs. Orton's. When we arrived there, we saw great crowds, which were constantly increased by the arrival of successive country processions, until it was estimated that the meeting amounted to sixty thousand people. There was a double row of constables, formed from Mr. Buxton's, where the magistrates had taken their station, to the hustings. My father joined us soon after our arrival at Mrs. Orton's. At length, Hunt made his appearance in an open barouche, drawn by two horses, and a woman dressed in white sitting on the box. On their reaching the hustings which were prepared for the orator, he was received with enthusiastic applause, the waving of hats and flags, the blowing of trumpets, and the playing of music. Hunt stepped onto the hustings, and was again cheered by the vast assemblage. He began to address them, and I could distinctly see his motions through the glass I held in my hand, and I could hear his voice, but could not understand what he said. He paused, and the people cheered. About this time there was an alarm among the women and children near the place where I stood, and I could also see a part of the crowd in motion towards the Deansgate side, but I thought it a false alarm, as many returned again and joined in the huzzas of the crowd. A second alarm arose, and I heard the sound of a horn, and immediately the Manchester Yeomanry appeared, coming from Peter Street, headed by Hugh Burley, the same man who, in 1815, as Borough Reeve of Manchester, presided at the public meeting assembled to petition Parliament for the repeal of the Corn Laws. They galloped up to the house where the magistrates were assembled, halted, and drew up in line. After some hesitation, from what cause I do not know, I heard the order to form three deep, and then the order to march. The trumpeter led the way, and galloped towards the hustings, followed by the yeomanry. Whilst this was passing, my attention was called to another movement, coming from the opposite side of the meeting. A troop of soldiers, the 15th Hussars, turned round the corner of the house where we stood, and galloped forwards towards the crowd. They were succeeded by the Cheshire Yeomanry, and lastly by two pieces of artillery, on the arrival of the soldiers, the special constables, the magistrates, and the soldiers set up loud shouts. This was responded to by the crowd, with waving of hats. After this, the soldiers galloped amongst the people, creating frightful alarm and disorder. The people ran helter-skelter in every direction. It was a hot, dusty day. Clouds of dust arose which obscured the view. When it had subsided, a startling scene was presented. Numbers of men, women, and children were lying on the ground, who had been knocked down and run over by the soldiers. I noticed one woman lying face downwards, apparently lifeless. A man went up to her and lifted one of her legs. It fell as if she were lifeless. Another man lifted both her legs and let them fall. I saw her some time after, carried off by the legs and arms, as if she were dead. My attention was then directed to a number of constables, bringing from the hustings the famous hunt, wearing a white hat, and with him another man, also wearing a white hat, who was said to be Johnson. The prisoners were treated in a scandalous manner. Many of the constables hissed and beat them as they passed. When they reached the magistrate's house, 
he was surrounded by constables, some pulling him by the collar, others by the coat. A dastardly attack was made upon him by General Clay, who, with a large stick, struck him over the head with both hands as he was ascending the steps to the magistrate's house. The blow knocked in his hat and packed it over his face. He then turned round as if ashamed of himself and became a quiet spectator. The ground by this time was cleared, and nothing was to be seen but soldiers and constables. The Reverend Mr. Hay, the chairman to the magistrates, then stood on the steps of Mr. Buxton's house and addressed to the constables. I could not hear what he said, but he was cheered when he concluded. He then returned into the house, but came out again soon afterwards with Mr. Marriott, the magistrate, and Hunt, in the custody of Nadine, chief constable, and with Johnson in the custody of another constable. When Hunt made his appearance, he was assailed with groans and hisses by the soldiers and constables. Hunt took off his hat and bowed to them, which appeared to calm them, while they marched towards Deansgate on their way to the New Bailey prison, escorted by the cavalry. On quitting the windows from whence we had witnessed so many painful scenes, we descended, and found two special constables who had been brought into the house. One presented a shocking sight. The face was all over blood from a sword cut on his head, and his shoulder was put out. The other was bloody from being roared over, and kicked on the back of his head. Mrs. Banks's account from the Manchester man summarises the facts as they were known. Her account of what happened to her characters after the meeting, although fictionalised, powerfully conveys the atmosphere of fear as the Manchester yeomanry took to the streets of the town. Augusta Ashton had just passed her 15th birthday. She was slim, graceful and tall beyond her age and was surpassing lovely. She was still under Mrs Broadbent's care and went to school that morning as usual, other meetings having passed off quietly and no apprehension of disorder being entertained until long after nine o'clock. About that hour, the people began to assemble from all quarters on the open ground near St Peter's Church, not bloodthirsty roughs, but men, women and children drawn thither for the sight of a holiday spectacle. True of the collective 80,000, though there were many thousands of earnest thinking men who went to grapple with important questions, yet no such mighty gathering could be without its leaven of savagery and mischief. But those who went from the mills and the workshops, the hills and the valleys around Manchester, walking in procession with bugles playing and gay banners flying, though they might look haggard, pinched and careworn, made no attempt to look deplorable or excite compassion. They wore their Sunday suits and clean neckties, and by the side of Fustian and Corduroy walked the coloured prints and stuffs of wives and sweethearts who went as for a gala day to break the dull monotony of their lives and to serve as a guarantee of peaceable intention. Such at least was the main body, marshalled in Middleton by stalwart, stout-hearted Samuel Bamford, which passed in marching order, five abreast down Newton Lane, through Oldham Street, skirted the infirmary gardens and proceeded along Morsley Street, each leader with a sprig of peaceful laurel in his hat. Women and little ones preceded them or ran on the footway, singing, dancing, shouting gleefully in the bright sunshine, as at any other pageant to which the music of the bugle gave life and spirit and waving flags gave colour. 
Such, too, are the bands which, with banners and music, fell in with them on their route and together parted the dense multitude as a wedge on their way to the decorated platform. Then Samuel Bamford observed that other leaders had been less temperate. There were to be seen black banners and placards inscribed with seditious mottoes and emblems, caps of liberty, skull and crossbones, bread or blood, liberty or death, equal representation or death, this last with an obverse of clasped hands and heart, and the one word, love, but all the same funereal black and white. But ere he could well note or deplore this, the scattered bands struck up, God save the king and rule Britannia. Deafening shouts rent the air, and Henry Hunt, drawn in an open barouche by white horses, made his way slowly to the hustings amid the enthusiastic cheering of the multitude. A Mrs. Fylde's, arrayed in white with a cap of liberty on her head and a red cap borne on a pole before her, sat on the box seat. It is said she had been hoisted there from the crowd. Be this as it may, she paid dearly for her temerity before the day was out. Barely had Henry Hunt ascended the platform, taken off his white hat and begun to address his attentive auditory, when there was a startling cry, The soldiers are upon us! and the 15th Hussars, galloping round a corner, came with their spare jackets flying loose, their sabres drawn, and threw themselves men and horse upon the closely packed mass without a note of warning. All had been preconcerted, prearranged. From the early morning, magistrates had been sitting in conclave at the Star Inn, and there Hugh Burley, a cotton spinner, was said to have regaled too freely the officers and men of his yeomanry corps, so soon to be let loose on the swinish multitude, as they called them. A cordon of military and yeomanry had been drawn round St Peter's Field, like a horde of wolves round a flock of sheep. The Borough Reeve and other magistrates issued their orders from a house at the corner of Mount Street, which overlooked the scene, and thence, not from a central position where he could be properly seen and heard, a clerical magistrate read the Riot Act from a window in an inaudible voice. Then Nadine, the cowardly bully, having a warrant to apprehend the ringleaders, although he had a line of constables thence to the hustings, declared he dared not serve it without the support of the military. His plea was heard, and thus through the blindness, the incapacity, the cowardice, or the self-importance of this one man, soldiery hardened in the battlefield, yeomanry fired with drink, were let loose like barbarians on a closely wedged mass of unarmed people, and one of the most atrocious massacres in history was the result. Amid the shouts and shrieks of men and women, cries of, Shame! Shame! Break! Break! They are killing them in front! Break! Break! Hussars, infantrymen, yeomen rushed on the defenceless people. They were sabred, stabbed, shot, pressed down, trampled down by horse and infantry. And in less than ten minutes, the actual field was cleared of all but mounds of dead and dying, severed limbs, torn garments, pools of blood, pawing steeds, and panting heroes. 
men and maidens, mothers and babes, had been butchered by their own countrymen for no crime. Hunt had been taken, Bamford had escaped to be arrested afterwards, and Mrs. Files, hanging suspended by a nail in the platform which had caught her white dress, was slashed across her exposed body by one of the brave cavalrymen. But the butchery and the panic had spread from the deserted Aseldama over the whole town, and ere long the roar of cannon began to add its thunder to the terrors of the day. As the first shrieking fugitives rushed for their lives down Moseley Street, with the Manchester and Cheshire yeomanry in swift pursuit, Mrs Ashton, for the first time alarmed for the safety of Augusta, hurried through the warehouse in search of Mr Ashton, who was nowhere to be found. On the stairs she met Jabez, in a state of equal excitement. "'Miss Augusta, is she at school? Had I not better—' "'Oh, yes! Run! Run!' cried the mother, anticipating him. "'Go through the back streets and take her to her aunt's. It is not safe to bring her home.' He was gone before she concluded. His master's daughter was the very light of his young eyes. From back Moseley Street he tore down Rook Street and Meal Street, into Fountain Street, across Market Street already in a ferment, and onward down High Street without a pause. By good fortune he met the young girl and a schoolfellow on their usual homeward route, at the corner of Church Street, almost afraid to proceed, the distant firing had so scared them. "'This way! This way, Miss Ashton!' was his impetuous cry, as he hurried them from the main thoroughfare, into which a stream of terror-stricken people was flowing, through by-streets and a private entry to the back door of Mr Chadwick's house, which they found unfastened, and then he thanked God in his heart of hearts that she at least was safe. Upstairs rushed Augusta, followed by her young friend, in search of her aunt and cousin, whom she found in the drawing-room in a state of the greatest trepidation and alarm. Dolly, a stout woman-servant, had gone to Fountain Street, as was her custom, to assist her paralysed master home to dinner. From the windows, meanwhile, they had seen men, women and children flying along hatless, bonnetless, shoeless, their clothes rent, their faces livid and ghastly, cut and bleeding, shrieking in pain and terror as they ran or dropped in the path of pursuing troopers, and their hearts throbbed wildly with affright as they pictured the helpless old man caught in that whirlpool of horror and destruction with only a woman's arm to protect him. "'Jabez will go and meet them,' cried Augusta. "'He is below!' "'Jabez!' exclaimed Ellen, starting to her feet, her white face flushed for a brief moment. "'Oh, no, no!' But without waiting to hear her cousin's exclamation, or to note her change of colour, Augusta had run downstairs to Jabez waiting in the long kitchen, and communicated her aunt's fears to him. Personal danger was unthought of when Augusta Ashton pointed to needful service. The lobby door closed after him with a bang before she had well explained her wishes, and when Augusta reappeared in the drawing-room, Ellen Chadwick's head was stretched from the window, watching the sturdy young man stem the onrushing tide of humanity, the only one in all that crowd with his face turned towards the danger from which the rest fled in desperation. The sights and sounds that met her eyes and ears were terrible, 
gashed faces and maimed limbs, appeals and imprecations mixed with the roar of a surging crowd, the dropping fire of musketry, the coarse shouts of the yeomanry drunk with wine and blood. As her fearful eyes followed Jabez, a man rushed past whose hand had been chopped off at the wrist. With the remaining hand he held his hat to catch the vital stream which gushed from the bleeding stump, and as he ran he cried, Blood for blood! Blood for blood! in a tone which made her shudder. Faint and sick she drew back her head, but open apprehension for her dear father and secret fear for the apprentice who had gone so readily to pilot him through that surging human sea caused her to look forth once more. Augusta and her friend with blanched cheeks and lips were also at the window, fascinated, as it were, with that which chilled them. Jabez turned the corner into Piccadilly, where one or two good brick houses had been converted into shops, without lowering the floors or removing the original palisades, which enclosed bold flights of steps leading to doors with respectable shop windows on each side. A confectioner of some standing named Mabbott occupied the second of these, he and his neighbour were hurriedly putting up their shutters as Jabez, crushing his way through the thickening crowd, saw Molly and Mr Chadwick jammed up against the palisades, a young mounted yeomanry officer in all his pride of blue and silver, brandishing his sabre, urging his unwilling steed upon them and shouting, Move on, you rebels, move on or I'll cut you down! Strong of nerve and will, Jabez thrust the impending throng aside and grasped the horse's reins to force it back, crying as he did so, Shame, you coward, to attack a woman and a paralysed man! Come in here quick, Mr Chadwick, cried Mr Mabbott at that instant, opening his closed gate and drawing the feeble gentleman and his attendant within, as the sabre, raised either to terrify or strike the old man, came down on the outstretched arm of Jabez, gashing it frightfully. Another of the corps riding past, with his eyes full upon them, stopped his horse at the gallop, as if to interpose, but he was too late. "'My God! Aspinall, what have you done?' he exclaimed. And throwing his own reins over the palisades, he dismounted hastily, caught at Jabez, who had staggered back, and drew him too within the iron screen and helped him also into the confectioner's, as the other with a derisive laugh, which ill became his handsome face, turned at a hand gallop up Oldham Street, where he overtook a confrere, and with him sneered at that soft-hearted Ben Travis. Ellen and Augusta had not lost sight of Jabez many minutes, when two of the Manchester yeomanry, with their dripping sabres flashing in the August sun, wheeled their panting charges round and rode, heedless of the shrinking wretches beneath their hoofs, across the footway and made the brute beasts rear and plunge against the area rails. "'Shut your windows or we'll fire upon you!' they shouted. Nothing daunted, Ellen called back indignantly. "'John Wormsley, I'm ashamed of you!' Not sober enough to distinguish friends from foes, again the pair launched their threat. Shut the window or we fire! And Ellen, seeing pistols advanced, drew the window down, Mrs Chadwick in much trepidation closing the other. Who was that handsome officer with John? asked Augusta as they drew back. 
He's a perfect Adonis. Augusta dipped surreptitiously into Mrs. Edge's novels at times, and a handsome man in uniform was, of course, a hero in her eyes. Oh, Augusta, how can you talk of handsome officers at such a fearful time? remonstrated Ellen. I think them hideous, every one. But who is he? Do you know him? she asked, even through the tears drawn by the scene she beheld. Oh, yes, know him, yes. He's a friend of John Wormsley. He's too wild to please either Charlotte or me. Oh, mother, I do wish father had come home. And Ellen turned a worried look towards Mrs. Chadwick, whose rigid face and clasped hands betrayed the anxiety which kept her silent. Augusta, though not naturally void of feeling, longed to know more of the handsome yeomanry officer who had so captivated her young fancy. But that was not the season for such inquiries, and she was conscious of it. Hark! What is that? burst from Mrs. Chadwick some half-hour later, as the sound of feet was heard from below, and Ellen, rushing to the stairs, came back followed by her father, leaning on the arm of a big, muscular man in the blue and silver uniform of the Yeomanry Cavalry, a red cord down his pantaloons, hessian boots, and to make assurance sure, M.Y.C. upon the shako, which his height compelled him to doff as he entered the doorway. "'Where is Jabez Clegg?' faltered Ellen, as she pressed to her father's side, led him to his chair, and placed his cushions to his liking, Augusta bringing him a buffet on which to rest his foot. The stalwart young fellow's eyes followed the attentive daughter as he answered, "'We have left Jabez Clegg at Mr. Mabbott's, Miss Chadwick,' with an inclination of his head. "'He was afraid you would be anxious for your father's safety, and I offered to see Mr. Chadwick home in his stead.' Ellen's black eyes expanded, questioning, and Mrs. Chadwick's mild voice, in accents indicative of some fear, asked, "'I hope not of necessity, sir.' "'Well, yes, madam, and I must hasten back. He has received a sabre-cut on—' "'Hey, dear!' Ben Travis, for he it was, darted forward to catch Ellen Chadwick, just as he had previously caught Jabez at Mabbott's gate. Aspinall's sabre had wounded two instead of one. Ellen Chadwick, who that day had seen what sabre-cuts meant, had fainted. Ben Travis bore her to the sofa. Mr. Chadwick pulled the bell-rope. Augusta ran for water. Mrs. Chadwick called for vinegar and burnt feathers. And in the midst of the commotion, Mr. Ashton burst into the room in a state of excitement very foreign to his nature, which was tolerably easy-going. "'Thank God, Augusta, you are here!' he exclaimed. "'Your mother is almost distracted about you. "'Why, what is the matter with Ellen? "'The whole world seems gone mad today, "'or hell has set its demons loose. "'I've just seen our friend Captain Hindley's horse "'take fright in Morsley Street at the firing "'and dash with him against those half-built houses "'at the corner of Stable Street. "'He was pitched off amongst the bricks and scaffolding, "'and the horse dropped.' Old Simon Clegg happened to be there, and he helped me and another to raise Hindley, who had fared better than his horse, for it was stone dead, and he is only badly hurt. He had gone on talking, though hardly anyone had listened to him. Ellen's fainting fit engrossed feminine attention, and the yeoman, seeing her revive, was saying to Mr. Chadwick, You will excuse me now, sir, 
I must look after our poor friend Jabez. Eh? What? Jabez? You don't mean to say anything has happened to Jabez Clegg? exclaimed Mr. Ashton, pausing in the act of drawing forth his snuff-box. Travis was gone, but Mr. Chadwick, whose tongue now was none of the readiest, stammered out, Yes, William, we left him at Mabbott's, the confectioner's. In trying to save me, he got badly wounded. I'm very sorry, for he is a noble young man. The wretches! I'd almost assume they'd wounded me. Stay here, Augusta. And with that, Mr. Ashton was off after Ben Travis. The main streets were unsafe, so he also took the back way and across back Piccadilly to Mr. Mabbott's, with a celerity scarcely to have been expected, for he was not a young man. But his apprentice had won upon him not only by his integrity and business qualifications, but by his manifest interest in the family he served, especially the daughter. Let me not be misunderstood. Augusta was the cynosure of Mr. Ashton's eyes. The homage of the apprentice to the schoolgirl he estimated as the homage of an apprentice merely and was gratified thereby, but his imagination never travelled beyond. He found Jabez on a chintz-covered couch in Mr. Mabbott's sitting-room, his arm bound tightly with a towel through which the blood would force its way. He was pale and exhausted from excessive hemorrhage, but seemed more concerned about the fate of the multitude outside than for his own. Ben Travis, discovering that no one had dared to venture in quest of a doctor, threw himself across his horse, which he found where he had left it, and was off up Morsley Street and thence back to Piccadilly, intent on bringing either Dr. Hull or Dr. Hardy. His uniform was a protection, and so the doctors told him, Dr. Hardy plainly saying that black cloth was not plate armour, and that his friend, whoever he might be, must wait until the tumult had somewhat subsided. But Jabez was only a couple of hours without attention. There were hundreds wounded that day who had to skulk into holes and corners to hide themselves and their agony as best they might, afraid of seeking surgical aid, lest Nadine and his myrmidons should pounce upon them and haul them to prison as rebels. The August sun had looked down in its noontide splendour when the events I have attempted to describe took place, but the tide of terror and destruction swept beyond the limits I have covered, and after the fierce onslaught, as if the carnage had been insufficient, Artillery went rattling and thundering through the streets to awe the peaceful and terrified inhabitants. As the flying crowd, dispersing, left bare St. Peter's Field, pressing outward and onwards through all accessible ramifications, the main thoroughfares thinned and the scene of action took a wider radius. Still the gallant hussars and yeomanry went prancing through these thoroughfares dashing hither and thither, slashing at stragglers, shouting to the rebels and to each other to clear the way, driving curious and anxious spectators from doors and windows, and firing at refractory outstretched heads. To clear the streets more effectually, cannon were planted at the entrances of the leading outlets from the town. And as if that were not enough, 
the artillery had orders to fire. At New Cross, two of these guns, which went rattling up Oldham Street, to the dismay of Augusta and the Chadwicks as well as their neighbours, were posted, one with its hard iron mouth directed up Newton Lane, the other set to sweep Ancoats Lane, not then so wide as at present. Nathaniel Bradshaw's butcher's shop was situated at the narrowest part of Ancoats Lane, a little beyond the canal bridge. The shutters had been closed precipitately on the first alarm, but Martha Bradshaw and her young brother Matthew opened the window of the room above and had their heads stretched out to watch and question the white-faced people scurrying past in disorder, when Matt Cooper, who lived with his genial son-in-law, came hurriedly home for dinner. His route from the tannery lay in a straight line up Miller's Lane, past Shude Hill Pits and the New Cross into Ancoats Lane, where he crossed only just before the cannon lumbered up. His clogs had rattled as swiftly over the pavement as his stiffening, hide-bound long legs would carry them, and observing the heads of Martha and Matthew advanced from the window, he waved his hand in gesticulation for them to withdraw from a post so fraught with peril. But youth is willful and woman curious. They either did not understand or did not heed his warning. They did not know all he had seen at New Cross, or how narrow an escape he had had from Aspinall's flashing sabre. Do go in, childer, he cried as he drew near. If you're wantin' to keep the yeds on your shoulders, wenches and lads shouldn't have look on such sights. Han you seen Nat? the wife asked anxiously. No. He's gone to see what are the mob and fightin's about. I wish he were home. Matt wished the same, but went in at the unfastened door and passed on to the room beyond, where he found the untended lobscouse boiling over into the fire. He took the lid off the pot, then went to the stairfoot and called, Martha! There being no answer, he strode back through the shop, saying as he went, Dang it, we'll not be content to lose hurt. He stepped out on the rough pavement, and looking up, called out, Do put your heads in, you'll... A musket shot, splintering a corner of the stone window sill on which they leaned, was more effective than his adjuration. The cannon boomed simultaneously, a shriek recalled the hastily withdrawn heads, and there on the rough sun-baked ground before their eyes lay weltering in blood a doubled-up form, which a minute before had been their father, Matt Cooper the Tanner, the preserver of Jabez, the friend of Simon and Bess. This harrowing event was the last of the painful incidents of that fatal day coming within the scope of this history, which, isolated as they are, the writer knows to be true, even though they may not be chronicled elsewhere. The streets grew silent and deserted, save by the military and medical men, as the day and the night advanced, but within the houses of poor and rich there were loud complaints and groans and murmurings which did not sink to silence with the day that called them forth. So God bless Henry Hunt, me boys, with Henry Hunt we'll go. We'll mount the cap of liberty in spite of Nady Joe.